five checks you've got to make sure to get right when you're actually buying land. And by land, I don't mean like land as in just the bare land. I mean a property. But the land is the core component you're trying to make work for you, right? Because that's what's going to appreciate in value. Now, these five checks are important, not because these five checks mean you should avoid them all, but it's more understanding them to be able to make sure you make a decision that actually factors in true value and not hyping something more than it should be. So let's go look at these five things to check and just make sure that you're actually assessing land the right way. Zoning. Zoning is an interesting one, not because of development potential in isolation, but because of your thought of the land and its potential and what you are then willing to pay for a price. If you look at zoning, what that's going to do is you're going to start to think with the council that, hey, I could maybe cut up my land into two, three, four properties. Now, this is a mistake many people make when they look at it from a living in capital cities, but then buying in regional cities. For example, in places like Sydney, you might have 550, 600 square meters land as a lot of land to chuck on a granny flat, or maybe even consider some subdivisions in certain codes. Now, when you're looking at these certain codes, it makes you think that the potential of the land is pretty solid due to this land square meterage. However, if you were to go to a regional town where they're pretty different with their zoning, suddenly this 800 square meter block comes up and you go, wow, I can't wait to buy this because of the potential it has. And you go gun ho trying to put in extra dollars into this deal just to make it work. All of a sudden, as you know, with higher land, actual square meterage, it also usually means older property, higher land, older property combined with a property that maybe hasn't been kept up as much also means the yield is lower. Now, I'm not saying older properties are bad. I own many from 1920s and 1940s in terms of age build. But the main thing I'm trying to share with you here is that if you went chasing top dollar for that land and not getting as much yield in return, thinking it had some potential, it didn't actually eventuate into what you thought. Because the council there might not see 550 square meters as you did see in Sydney. They might say you need 1,000 square meters or more. So suddenly this 800 square meter land you've paid top dollar for, thinking that you're going to have all this potential because you're sitting there used to what you're used to in Sydney, but it didn't end up being what it was supposed to be. So this is the first thing you want to look at in terms of checking. Make sure that you're not buying that land in a way that you think there's some potential, and really it's just a solid family block, which is what it's meant to be, and that's okay for it to be that as long as you pay the right price for it and not pay the price thinking of its potential. The next one is location. But by location, I'm not saying the area. I'm actually saying the segment of the area. So what I mean by that is main roads, uh, busy industrial precincts, just in front of a school, things that impact resale value, speed to sell, price variance. For example, a house in the same suburb, the same market conditions will not sell for as much or sell as quickly just because it's on a main road. So what does this mean? You might look at a land and look at them land size, property A, land size, property B. And land size for property A might be seven or 800 square meters. And then land size for property B might be 500 square meters. And then all of a sudden you're getting them at the same price. Here's you thinking, whoa, I'm the bargain hunter. I've got this right. I've got my negotiation game on point. And I'm here grabbing the deal of the lifetime, huge land, everything's ready to go. All of a sudden, you don't realize that the main road was actually the pricing factor that made it 10% cheaper, making that land size and price actually go out of whack in terms of calculation. So when you think of it that way, it means that you thought you got more land, but you ended up paying the same price because land was lifting and then the main road was dragging. 
And in turn, they equalized it. And so the outcome you thought was just bigger land. But the actual fact is you don't realize that you only got that discount because it was on the main road. So is that something you really want to carry? Something that has this dragger and lifter, where in my opinion, you should only be focusing on the lift, which is the suburb and a property that passes all due diligence and purchased correctly with comparable sales. And that's a big missing part that if you're on this journey and you're suddenly not comparing those due diligence factors, then that land is not equal. It's not priced the same way. And therefore you should not expect it to be a bargain just because you got a bigger parcel of land at the same price. It is not relative because it will not have the same impacts or effects on resale value. It may be more detrimental because something's dragging it down being on the main road. The same goes for those other things like schools, bus stops right in front. You might have an X factor or roundabout right in front. You might have the X factor of land size, but if this due diligence piece is impacting it, you're actually paying what you think is good dollars for the land size, but you're, you're paying what it should be anyway. And if you're paying what it should be anyway, then from that perspective, you start going harder on it because the land size is bigger and you start overpaying. Something you want to avoid when you've got due diligence fail, just avoid that property completely Unless you truly think that even being on that busier road gets enough upside on the development potential, but for that, you need to have that skill of the local understanding to ensure the development's truly feasible. Now, the third check out of the five checks to consider is actually the block shape. And this can include things like the frontage. So you've got end of cul-de-sac properties, you've got triangle blocks, you've got rectangle blocks, all these different things. Now, it's not here to say that you cannot buy the different blocks and shapes. It's okay. All of these may have a place in the portfolio that's still okay. But it's about making sure you're pricing it with that relative view. In terms of a 600 square meter example, that is a rectangle shape block quite flat and the house is towards the front, it's quite easy to see that you're going to have a decent backyard. It's going to be quite easy and quite common in terms of what people are looking for normally. And so from that perspective, if you now compare it to this 900 square meter end of cul-de-sac, shortened frontage home with an odd shaped block that looks like a baseball field from the top, suddenly you start looking at it and you think, wow, I'm onto a steal here. I've got eight to 900 square meters of land. In actual fact, that may get comparable valued as the same from that 600 square meter block. So what that means is you're not comparing apples and apples. And in fact, it might lead you to overpaying for these blocks that you think have these extra advantage, but really in terms of usability, space, it ends up being the same. And so when you look at the frontage aspect, frontage is just a measurement, but what we're actually realizing here is the block shape and the block size and how it's coming up and making sure you factor in that the triangle and the square aren't the same. So you might need extra house positioning to be improved on that triangle to have usability in backyard, or it might need that house to be in such a small portion of square meterage, meaning that the land is that much bigger, that it still makes it usable, even though the shape is odd. And using these tactics and tips will help you factor in shortcomings in certain land and then allow you to make them worked up to be better with the size of it or the positioning of the house. So now in terms of the pricing analysis, that was one way to consider the differences. However, it's also important to understand why. Now, some aspects are as simple as usability and desire from certain families, but there's some aspects are more technical. For example, if you've got council looking at an eight meter frontage, and then you've got this huge 900 square meter block, there's still limitations, even though the block and the zoning might be okay to figure out what you can fit on the actual block. The dwellings might be reduced because everything is accessing some driveway down the side instead of houses that are multiple on the front, middle and back. 
Now, yes, crafty planning in certain councils may make it work, but you don't want to go into a deal where the odds are stacked against you. So the idea here is that somewhere that might have a 20 meter frontage or 25 meter frontage, but still the same square meterage suddenly does more. So from a technical perspective, that's when councils and development gets into it. But from a non-technical perspective, if the house positioning, the land square meterage and the land shape don't consider all the factors in trying to bring those apples and oranges closer to apples and apples, then you might miss out because of the appeal side. And so this is where when we have a diamond shape blocked combined with a flat block, we need the diamond shaped one to have greater land size to compare it fairly to that flat one just so things can start to be equal. Don't feel like the shape itself should be a detractor from you to buy it. If it offers the size and then the shape itself is well balanced, then it's okay. In considering this, this is the third part of the five checks to make sure that you get right when you're trying to assess land price and ensure that you're aware of the surroundings. Number four, number four is going to be the slope. So the slope, again, isn't a bad thing, but it's more so to understand certain aspects of the property. If you've got it sloping from the front down, some people may consider the downsize of the drainage and they might look for the gates and the grills in front of the garage to ensure that there are effective solutions. Other people might look at that slope down and start to look at it from a perspective of, well, is that backyard going to be friendly and does that allow me to have my family run around, kids on the backyard? Now, again, these aren't reasons to say you shouldn't buy them, but it's more about understanding how that plays into comparable analysis to ensure that you're factoring that into the price you pay or into at least the assessment of the popularity of the property and you're not comparing apples and oranges again with complete flat box in every single purchase. Now with the slope, there are a few other factors. One is to do with that drainage side. Second is to do with the peel. Third is to do with the actual development potential in case you can't build it due to certain slopes. And fourth might be actual just safety. How often do you have slopes on blocks, have a backyard patio, but then don't have that sufficient step down with certain steps, certain railing, and all of a sudden that becomes an issue for prospective tenants or even future buyers or costs that you have to consider that you didn't consider. So this is where slopes can have multiple aspects to the review and even from a usable space too, because you might have that usable space be very different to the actual square meterage on the block. You might have square meterage of seven, 800, but no one's running around beyond that sort of four or 500 usage of it because of how severe slopes might be. Now, there are circumstances where from a technical perspective, you might actually even see costs of development increased if that's one of your goals. Imagine the slope is coming down and imagine that slope now needs to be filled because it's not like the development of the house is happening on the angle, unless you're the Leaning Tower Pisa, of course, but it's likely that your development's going to be quite flat, so it means more foundations needed for it. Now, whilst we're not looking at sites on this particular you know, view from a development perspective, that is just one aspect to consider if that's what you're looking for. The idea here is that slopes play a part and it's just about, again, pricing it. I've had properties in my portfolio that have some slopes in them. It doesn't mean that I say no to them, but it's about consideration of them in your pricing analysis. And that's the common theme here, whether that's frontage, slopes, shapes and sizes, zoning, the location, it's your pricing analysis and consideration of it. And of course, where you can, if it gets all too difficult, that's when you can just avoid them. That's going to be your choice in terms of whether you avoid them or keep them. But if you understand the fundamental ways of pricing them, you start to get a better journey of how you move ahead with not overpaying on certain sites. Now, the fifth and final one comes in tune with number four because the fourth one was slope. But what happens when you have some slopes is you might have certain blocks in different shapes and sizes in terms of their retaining walls. 
Now, retaining walls can have some cons against them if not managed right. And so you can also play two parts here with this rule. You can have one rule, just avoid them completely, or you can have another rule, which is understand their cost, understand them as part of the equation, and just factor it in long-term. There's been circumstances where I've seen both happen. So if we look at the avoid them overall, you might be scared of the engineering, the large-scale works, the 10, 20, 30, $40,000 bills and beyond, depending on the size of the wall. But that may lead you to miss out on certain opportunities, certain viewpoints, because usually if it's got that slope, it might have a certain view to it or an aspect or a certain suburb that it's in that means there's a lot of hills and you might miss out on those suburbs completely due to the, I guess, number of stock that sit there. For example, there's a suburb called Rangeville in Toowoomba, which sits in the most beautiful sort of suburb, high points, hills, and a lot of properties have retaining walls there. So if you were to ignore Rangeville's sort of retaining walls, you might ignore a large portion of their properties, which when you look at the growth that it's had, I think the growth you could say over the last few years has outweighed any retaining wall bill at all. And so from that perspective, people still consider the positives of these hilly suburbs with lots going on in comparison to the costs that come with it. But it's about pricing it effectively. It's about understanding that these works can come up and knowing that in future, there may be an issue. Now, in terms of the retaining walls, you might look at it from a perspective of hard avoid or keep, but if you are keeping it in there, it's about understanding the shape that they're in, considering pest and building inspection reports, considering is this a thing that you're going to do sooner? Is this something that may come up later on? How much will it cost? All these considerations can come up into the mix. Essentially though, again, it's like these other few points where it's not about whether you kill the deal or not. That's an active choice you make, but it's about your understanding of these things in part of a deal and your pricing for it, and weighing up the growth versus the impact of these things. That's five checks to consider when you're looking at large blocks of land, and making sure you look at them with apples and apples rather than apples and oranges. And if you start to bring these five things into your equation, you're either going to decide what you feel comfortable with or not comfortable with, you're going to be able to price land effectively, and consider these five things when you're paying for land. Just to recap those five things, there's slope, frontage, retaining walls, development potential and zoning, and lastly, the location when it comes to the actual considerations of main roads and other things that are on there. If you can decide what to kill, what to keep, and then how to price analyze it, you should go through your portfolio without any of these costly mistakes that can come up. And if they do come at a cost, at least you know that you've viewed the opportunity upside and considered it from the get-go. Now, if you're tuning into this and you've gone, hey, look, Arjun, these were super helpful in terms of things I should check and you want more things like this that bust myths, give you tips and also go through where you can actually read about all of this in more detail, check out investorkit.com.au slash research. And we've got a blog section there where we bust some of the coolest myths in property as well as go through some of the most frequently asked questions where we hear often from investors and turn them into blogs. You're going to find more examples like this when it comes to things to avoid, things to consider. And if you do check it out, it's totally for free. It's investikit.com.au slash research and click on the news and insight section to see our blog. That's another episode of the Investikit podcast. I'm Arjun Paliwal, your head of research. And don't forget to like, subscribe and follow.